Thank you, Julian, and once again, uh, thank you so much to the Lobels for making this uh, uh, challenging, interesting opportunity possible. Uh, I have, of course, to begin with uh, a confession, which is even though I'm going to talk about the psychosocial world, I'm still a neurobiologist. I went to sleep as one, I woke up as one. And so for the first half, even as we talk about the environment, you'll be seeing uh, pictures of the nervous system uh, and uh, not to give away the suspense, uh, the good part of the beginning has to do with debunking what I would call the sloppy Cartesianism of, of psychiatry, creating in some sense false distinctions between environmental impact, psychotherapy, and brain function. But at the end, we'll get to uh, at least the beginnings of the hard part, which is the aspect of our uh, mentation, our subjectivity, uh, which has to do with our sense of self and agency. And that's not so easily understood in neurobiological terms. And then tomorrow, uh, we'll uh, go on and talk about uh, uh, attributions and understanding on the part of uh, individuals, treaters, and also uh, civil society when it comes to uh, compulsive behaviors. But uh, let, let me uh, begin by saying that a question, and it, it came up last night in a few different guises, is uh, the question of how does our lived experience uh, get under the skin, right? And there are two major classes of, uh, of explanations uh, about how environmental factors uh, that can be quite physical, but also um, uh, experience that we gain through conscious engagement with the world, uh, alter the way our brains function and therefore our memories and our behavior. Uh, the first is uh, learning mechanisms. And these are uh, very special mechanisms that characterize nervous systems, which we will come to in a, in, in a second, but in which uh, certain kinds of experience, which is salient enough, alters the connections between nerve cells, the weights of synapses, and changes the functions of brain circuits uh, in a way that uh, modifies sub subsequent behavior. And, and these are important, uh, among other things, these probably evolved as a matter of survival, and we're gonna talk about fear conditioning and post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in, in a second. It's, it's worth it to say that these, that these special forms of um, recording of uh, environmental events are among the, the longest lived aspects of, uh, of, uh, of our brain function, that is, most of you can remember declarative memories back to your childhood. Usually they start emerging from the murk at around age four or five, uh, but it really is rather remarkable that I can, uh, even though my memories may be a bit hazy, that I can think back and uh, remember the names of the teachers who persecuted me in kindergarten because I was ill-behaved and wouldn't sit still and so forth. Um, and that was, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, uh, almost 60 years ago. So these are, these are really remarkable, but they uh, not only record events uh, like a photograph album, they also obviously influence our behavior. 
Now, there's a second class of uh, mechanisms, diverse mechanisms, that I'm not going to talk so much about, but th these really have to do with adaptation. And uh, maybe the most familiar uh, or the easiest way of thinking about this, uh, uh, this class of mechanisms, which also affect our brains, is just to think about your muscles, right? So when you work out and you stress your muscles, um, what happens is that over time they adapt to this uh, uh, t terrible environmental stressor exercise uh, and they begin to uh, hypertrophy, that is the cells uh, put on uh, girth, they make more protein and this happens in our, this kind of thing happens in our brains all the time. We, uh, we control the expression of the genes in the nucleus of our cells, turn that up or down and that goes by the name of epigenetics, uh, that is uh, uh, not changing the gene sequence, but changing their expression. Uh, we regulate neurotransmitters and hormones, both the amount we make in our nerve cells and uh, also the, uh, the, the responsiveness of their receptors. So there are lots of ways um, uh, that we can sort of divide into these two classes in which experience gets under the skin. Now, um, <clears throat> yesterday I was talking about genetic vulnerabilities to uh, severe neuropsychiatric disorders as I try to develop a credible early picture of, you know, a, a mechanistic set of explanations. Uh, today I want to turn to a uh, condition that very clearly is triggered by experience, by the environment, albeit in vulnerable people. And uh, there, there have been twin studies and clearly they establish that one's genes have something to say and one's development has something to say about the risk that exposed to uh, some uh, very severe stressor. Uh, one would develop a post-traumatic stress disorder, which is characterized by intrusive reliving of the trauma, that is rehearsing of the trauma, uh, chronic elevations in arousal, people will have an, an increased startle response, um, and that also relates to the fact probably that people have sleep disturbance, they will not only have nightmares, but they'll also often have insomnia. And, and then uh, perhaps as a reaction uh, to the, the really ver very aversive stimuli that are, uh, that, that are elicited by any reminder of uh, the traumatic events, people will begin to restrict their thinking and will engage in avoidance and some people will even become emotionally blunted. But nobody doubts that PTSD is a condition that uh, is uh, very much a result of something that happens, that, that, that someone experiences. And in addition, uh, like many disorders, uh, the most important treatments actually are, uh, are psychotherapies. So before I get to uh, sort of uh, some reflections about this. Let me tell you a little bit of a simple story about uh, fear conditioning uh, and how it might relate to post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is a cartoon from uh, uh, Joe Ledoux of, uh, you know, you're kind of walking along and you come across uh, uh, a, a rattlesnake and uh, what happens is that uh, uh, here, it's the visual, but it could be the sound of the rattle, gets processed uh, in the visual system, 
And uh, normally, uh, visual stimuli go from the retina to a way station in the brain, the thalamus, and then to the primary visual cortex where they get processed. It's interesting, for these highly salient stimuli, there even seems to be an early bypass, just even before this is resolved to be a snake um, from the thalamus, uh, uh, because as Ledoux says, it's better to mistake a a uh, stick for a snake than a snake for a stick and you know a few extra milliseconds may be uh, very important in the face of danger but at any rate both from the thalamus and from the visual cortex um, information goes to many parts of the brain but including a part of the brain called the amygdala which is involved in the processing of strong emotional stimuli sometimes it's become caricatured only as a sort of fear center which is uh, not at all true rewards are also processed through the amygdala but uh, through the amygdala, and then there's a set of effector systems that again have to do with survival. So uh, um, perhaps before you uh, stumbled on this snake, you were um, digesting a picnic of uh, you know brie, baguette, and rosé, uh, and your blood supply is uh, is largely in your gut, working on uh, digestion. But in the emergency, you activate your sympathetic nervous system and your stress hormones because you better redirect that blood from your stomach to your legs so that you can you know, motor out of there and your heart rate goes up and you become alert, right? Uh, we'll come back to the arousal uh, in a bit. Uh, prey animals, you know, rabbits and deer, uh, tend to freeze uh, in, in, in response to an emergency. And if we can tell an evolutionary just-so story, you know, predator vision is tuned often more to motion than to form. And so freezing is smart. It tells you that bunnies evolved before the discovery of the motor or the development of the motor car because freezing has now become maladaptive in many circumstances. Um, and uh, again, uh, any organism in the danger becomes uh, uh, aroused. But what's really important and important for the, in our ideas of PTSD is memories form. And these are survival memories, right? And, and again, salience has to do with uh, how things are learned. Uh, when I've taught uh, the arcana of neuroanatomy to undergraduates, you know, it's not very salient and they have to rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it and try to threaten themselves with an exam to, to, to get anything consolidated. But, you know, if a child touches a hot stove, she or he, they don't have to keep testing and see, do I get burned again, right? This is uh, one trial learning, right? They do not do it again. And again, the more salient the threat, uh, uh, and again, one can give oneself some evolutionary tall tales, you know, the, 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 the more rapid and intense uh, the learning. Um, part of, uh, part of the, this uh, circuitry that goes from the amygdala activates, um, you know, well-known neurotransmitters in the brainstem, such as norepinephrine in the locus ceruleus, which then, interestingly, the way it's organized, it basically communicates with a great deal of the brain that basically, um, you know, we're going to change from whatever level of drowsiness we were in or any form of attention we were in to alert scanning vigilance. So 
if instead of a picnic you you know you were sitting uh, reading a book and all of a sudden a noxious fire alarm went off, uh, part of the job of norepinephrine would be to you know redirect your attentional resources to you know from this narrow uh, focus to again a, a kind of uh, kind of vigilance. So the, uh, the, the, the bottom line here is that the activation of these fear circuits uh, recruits many different aspects of the brain. So now, however, I, I want to focus on this very simple slide for a minute because this is going to do some work for us in the short term, but even more work in the longer term when we think about the difference between conscious subjective experience and the brain as machine. So, as I've just said, survival requires that we encode memories of, uh, of whatever this danger was so that, you know, the next time you are in this sort of context where you might come across a rattlesnake or whatever, you're going to be prepared. So um, the first thing to be said is that in our lived subjective experience, uh, we, we, we have a single fused set of memories, right? Uh, we, can, we might remember where we saw this snake or had this negative experience, or in the case of the first slide, you know, where this explosion occurred. And we can remember that it was noxious. We might, we might really relive that. Uh, and all kinds of details about the, the occurrence and the context. And this, of course, again, is conscious. And we, we, we think of it together. But actually, several things are happening. So as this memory is encoded in different parts of the brain, uh, we have this, again, this cognitive component. And this, uh, this memory of persons, places, events requires uh, the the temporal cortex, especially the hippocampus, and we've learned about the role of the hippocampus in memory from some unfortunate humans, like the very pa famous patient H.M., who had epilep epilepsy surgery uh, for you know, intractable seizures, and the physician removed his hippocampi on both sides, and H.M. never remembered a new fact, um, and so that surgery was never done again, and one recognized the role of the hippocampus in the encoding of memories early on uh, and uh, until they get consolidated in the cerebral cortex. But the hippocampus also is involved in the context. You know, where, where did this bad thing or anything, but where did this you know, danger, danger occur? Where did this threat happen? And part of that is available to consciousness, but part of it actually isn't. And I'll come back to that in a second. But something else happens. You know, this is, uh, this, uh, I've chosen this example of fear memories because it's about survival, right? So, so uh, if, if I'm in the same context, right, in the same place where uh, I almost was bitten by a snake before, or I was almost blown up before, um, I might be just sort of, in my usual way, distracted and kind of, uh, you know, humming a, some, alternative rock song to myself uh, or thinking about uh, you know, being angry at the referees who just gave me a hard time about a paper. 
Uh, and I might not even notice that this is, this is a place that is very reminiscent of where bad things have happened, but something interesting would, you, you could observe is that my heart rate might actually be going up. And if you measured my blood pressure, it would be uh, increased. And maybe the blood flow to my uh, extremities would be increased. And that's because this, this memory, this, uh, you know, which is not available to consciousness, right? I can't, I can't control willfully my blood pressure, uh, has been encoded uh, as part of this survival response. Okay, so there are, there are many more aspects to this, but there are these, these two prongs, right? And the, a question we'll come back to later is, we could be talking to a patient who has post-traumatic stress disorder who's describing their you know, subjectivity and, and the meaning and the interpretation of this based on these conscious memories. Encoded exactly in parallel are what we might call these emotional memories that are gonna activate this survival response. But the correspondence between the two is not so simple, right? And, and, and by introspection, I have absolutely no access to this, this physiological and partly behavioral business end of these memories. So what I experience as a single event already in my brain has been divided up in interesting ways into this conscious and accessible experience which I can interpret, and then this unconscious um, set of memories that are gonna activate all kinds of physiological and behavioral uh, systems. If I were, you know, a bunny, you know, when I was in that context, I might automatically freeze given the stimulus, uh, even though, you know, um, you know, I don't know what bunnies think about, but be that as it may. Okay, so this is just another picture of it. You know, this is a slide was in French, actually, hippocamp instead of hippocampus. But um, but I'm showing this to you because. Uh, just, you know, I can't resist a little bit of the neuroscience processing uh, to show that this is, you know, how this, this uh, emotional aspect of the memory is encoded, but, uh, but basically information about this threat or this danger comes in from the thalamus and the cerebral cortex into the lateral and basolateral amygdala, and then lots of processing occurs, and then there are these outputs to all of these effector systems um, in, in, in the brain. And we can, um, you know, one can, this is from uh, uh, the, the Quirk lab, a uh, very good lab studying fear. Um, you can uh, put an electrode in, uh, into uh, a rodent uh, amygdala. Here's the basolateral amygdala, part of the input, and the lateral amygdala, and then here are some of the outputs. And the experimental paradigm, which is, uh, uh, widely used is uh, to uh, use Pavlovian conditioning. So, you know, everybody knows about uh, Pavlov's dogs, where Pavlov engaged in appetitive conditioning, where he rang a bell before, just before some palatable food was, was presented, and uh, pretty soon the dogs uh, uh, learned that this was a a uh, very strong predictor of food, and they started salivating and preparing to eat when they heard the bell. 
and uh, fear conditioning works in the very same way. Uh, a neutral, previously neutral tone is paired with a foot shock, very aversive to the rodent, and very quickly, just like a child touching a stove, the rodent learns that uh, the tone predicts uh, foot shock, and, and you see when you then play the tone by itself, the rodent will freeze. If you measure it, its blood pressure will go up, its heart rate will go up, um, and the question is, you know, how, it, how does that get under the skin? How is it recorded, at least these sort of fear aspects, the physiological aspects of the memory, and it's, it, it, if, if you record uh, in, uh, from the, the amygdala, you actually see that uh, what happens is something called the process, we're not gonna go into any detail, long-term potentiation, but basically um, the, the, the uh, neurons, the connections, increase their strength, they increase their connectivity, their weight, so that you go from a state where um, the tone causes, a, these are just neurons firing, spiking, da, 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 da. you go from, you know, the tone, the neutral tone, you know, having a modest effect on these amygdala neurons to, you know, if you find the right one, the tone, you know, activating, you know, all of this, uh, this activity, and that's what drives, that, that, that's really a sort of a, let's call it a metaphor, a picture of what might undergird these kinds of memories, right? So that, and, 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 and you know, the same things uh, we know happen uh, in humans. We don't know it in this kind of detail. We know it in the, 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 at the level of, you know, many neurons firing together that we might see in, um, uh, in, in, in imaging where we might pair you know, experimentally, uh, something with a, with a mild shock. Um, I don't know that I gave us a picture of, well, so I didn't. So, um, now, this, this ability to, to dissect what we have this fused experience of a trauma or of something threatening uh, doesn't usually present itself in humans. Um, but the Damasios, uh, Tony Damasio and Hannah Damasio, have studied some patients who have had, we should go back, lesions in their hippocampus, which, which occur, the hippocampus is very sensitive to anoxia. So uh, if somebody has a, their, a heart arrhythmia and they happen to be revived, uh, there's often hippocampal damage, and as I told you from, you know, reminding everyone of HM, you need your hippocampus for the consolidation of what's called declarative memories, the memories available to consciousness of persons, places, or, or, uh, or events. Uh, and then uh, the amygdala, uh, so, so structures here, turn out to be uh, very sensitive to certain viral infections. And uh, especially uh, herpes simplex uh, often attacks uh, uh, and damages the amygdala. Again, if, you know, since I've started telling evolutionary tall tales, you know, maybe the, one of the ways, of course, the, the most common ways that rabies uh, adva advances itself is through the urine of bats. So I don't, not much of a behavioral story there. But, you know, the fact that rabies, for example, does like these emotional centers in the brain may have something to do with why rabid animals 
are irritable and bite each other, and maybe that you know is a good way for the virus to spread each other, spread itself. I don't know. But anyway, uh, her, some of these viruses damage the amygdala, and so the Damasios found some patients who had had herpes encephalitis who had uh, amygdala lesions. So then that you can you can do something, um, obviously, not quite the same as tone and foot shock for a rodent, but you, you, can give, you, you can have people agree to experience a mild electrical shock. And you know, the, the um, Damasios basically showed uh, just a pro projected different color slides, you know, yellow, orange, blue. And they paired the blue you know, square, the blue slide, with, uh, as a prediction of shock. And people conditioned very nicely. And uh, later, I'll, I will show you an image of fear conditioning in humans in their brains. Um, uh, and um, you know, and, and a, a, a person who is healthy with no none of these brain lesions will basically, um, on the one hand, they you know, as the blue square gets shown, their heart rate will go up, their blood pressure will go up, you know, whatever their galvanic, and I think what the Damascus mostly me measured was galvanic skin response or sweating, but they'll also say, oh, I, you know, I, right, I, I don't like, you know, the blue square is up, I, don't, I really don't like this, it's quite unpleasant. People with uh, amygdala lesion um, perfectly remembered, yeah, I've been in this room before, you know, I've seen these different squares, but uh, when the blue square comes on, there's absolutely no change in galvanic skin response, blood pressure, right? The, 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 this limb of the emotional memory, this unconscious emotional memory, is gone, right? Not great for survival, fine in the lab. People with a hippocampal lesion had no recollection, actually, of ever seeing these slides uh, before. But when the blue slide came up, they had a change in galvanic skin response, and they had uh, you know change in heart rate. So the point is, with these brain lesions, you can actually see in the humans that there is this, you know, th th there really are these separate kinds of memory systems, which we should come back to. Okay, but before we come back to that, let's switch from, um, you know, the experience of a trauma to its treatment, which is, you know, uh, sometimes a, a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, but generally a form of psychotherapy, either exposure therapy, right, where the idea is um, that, you know, you, you, you have some reminder of this trauma, usually first in imagination, because people with severe PTSD have, can have really catastrophic reactions to you know, really concrete reminders, but, you know, uh, but, but an imagination. And you're doing it in a, where the therapist is helping you recontextualize and you feel safe. And the idea is that these uh, reminders of, of the trauma, the stimuli, should um, lessen in their uh, ability to cause uh, distress and, and uh, physiological changes and so forth. And then you might progress to some, you know, more concrete real life uh, engagement with these 
what have become now phobic stimuli, and again, the idea is to recontextualize them, to, re, you know, to, to, to basically say, um, gee, you know, this, is, this really isn't as dangerous as I thought, and so forth. And the alternative is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. But, you know, clearly there are many other modalities of psychotherapy that are used in uh, many other conditions. So, you know, people have done human MRIs of before and after psychotherapy, and they say the brain is different. It doesn't really excite me very much because, you know, uh, my brain probably looks different after, uh, you know, I eat, you know, a uh, chocolate chip and my, you know, it, it's, it's really not that, that helpful. Uh, and, and in fact, most of these uh, imaging studies uh, don't, well, the fact is we just don't have the kind of resolution yet, even with the most powerful magnets, to tell ourselves anything really useful mechanistically about uh, psychotherapies. Maybe one, one day we will. So I'm not going to pretend that such things exist. Um, uh, rather, uh, you know, I started with the sort of environmental input that causes psychopathology because there I think we have a reasonable emerging neuroscience story. Again, these, those are very, very big effects. And for psychotherapy, we'll have to be much more theoretical, but the, the view is that in the end, psychotherapy or drugs or neuromodulation, which is still early, and that's things like repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, where if you actually look at the clinical trials for treating depression, you should really be underwhelmed and wonder how regulators said that this was okay. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe one day. And uh, increasingly for some conditions, um, deep brain stimulation, you know, an electrode and a circuit, uh, deep brain stimulation works extremely well for movement disorders. So there are about 200,000 people worldwide being treated for Parkinson's disease after the drug stopped working with deep brain stimulation, and they have very good responses. There are some centers in the world where uh, they have, uh, they report good results for treating depression with deep brain stimulation, this form of neuromodulation, but in a large-scale clinical trial sponsored by a biased party, indeed by the uh, maker of the electrode, St. Jude's, the trial was ended early for futility. So I, I don't think this is ready for prime time yet, but in theory, you know, psychotherapy, drugs, neuromodulation could all be modalities to treat neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, the point is that, that if it is true that what undergirds symptoms and impairments are problems in synapses and circuits that are proximate to our uh, lived experience and our behavior, and let me just say here, there is a real, there is a, a big gap in understanding, right, between any pictures, any, I, I could show you uh, of circuit function and symptoms or cognition that really needs computational models. It needs, needs a, a middle level and 
Uh, it's uh, exciting to me that uh, some very good computational neuroscientists, many of them actually here in Great Britain, some of them at the uh, Gatsby Center in London, are beginning to think about something called computational psychiatry that is really trying to show some mediation between um, the, the physiology of circuits and, um, and cognition. But, I, but it's, very, it's very early days, and you know, one, uh, I, I look forward to, to, to seeing those kinds of results. We don't want to have pseudo explanations, just correlations, right? You know, this circuit is activated and you have this symptom. That's really pretty unsatisfying. But the complexity is such that we're going to need, need these models. But the idea is, if you can, you know, take what is really then a, a, an early assertion, is that all of these therapies, if they're going to treat these illnesses, have got to work by changing synaptic weights, by changing circuit behavior. And, um, and in a way that you know, people don't find intuitive, I want to use an example of this, and that is the fact that both psychotherapy and drugs and medicines can change the content of consciousness. And, and the best example is um, maybe is depression, right? Which, in depression, people have not only you know, their physiological symptoms you know, of low mood and low energy and sleep and so forth, but, but they begin to feel right, helpless, uh, they lose hope, and people get suicidal ideas. And you know, if individuals can respond to um, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, and uh, as they start to get better, uh, these ideas change. And maybe the therapy actually even directly addresses some of these ideas. I, it's not so easy, but you, you know, the hopelessness can be treated as a, uh, as, a, as a negative cognitive bias that might be addressable in cognitive therapy. But if you treat somebody um, with just uh, an, uh, you know, a Prozac-like drug, an SSRI, and they happen to get better even if they haven't had psychotherapy, what happens? Well, the, the same ideas begin to melt away. And I, that's really quite extraordinary, right? Because, um, uh, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I think I even have a slide for this, a lot of psychiatrists have, somehow carry in their minds a kind of sloppy Cartesian distortion that, you know, ideas or environmentally driven psychopathology should respond only to or largely to psychotherapies and then sort of genetic biological things rising up from the basement of the brain might respond to drugs and clearly that's, that's not, not the case. There's a convergence on uh, we would think, again, cells, synapses, and circuits. And the choice of a therapy or combining therapy is really an empirical matter, right? It should really depend on what's the evidence that the therapy works, um, what's the risk of the therapy. So you might, you know, one advantage of cognitive therapy over medicines is uh, side effects, um, much less. Um, one reason to worry about deep brain stimulation is you've got to drill a hole in the skull and there are risks of infection and bleeding, but it, maybe if nothing else works and that works, you would go for the risk. And then there are also patient factors. Some people would say, I'm not going to take a pill, 
or somebody is going to say, cognitive therapy, homework, you're kidding. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in school anymore, and give me that pill. Um, and uh, unfortunately, also cost matters. You know, insurance companies and governments have something to say about it. Now, I'm going to say something that probably most people would find an annoying assertion, but there's actually no rational scientific reason why different kinds of psychiatrists and psychologists should, you know, religiously favor, you know, one type of treatment over another. Um, again, it's, it's really an empirical matter, but I, you know, I think, um, I, I think basically, uh, you know, uh, self-interest uh, drives cognitive distortions in, in all of us, right? Um, um, you know, it's been discovered uh, by behavioral economists that uh, small gifts from drug companies to, uh, to, to registrars have an, a, a remarkable effect on how they think about that drug company and, and, and the drugs. Uh, uh, and, you know, they don't need a huge bribe or a new car. Just, you know, a slice of pizza at lunch works. And, you know, it, it, this, this has to do with our sort of social mechanisms and, you know, uh, humanizing somebody and liking them. So it's not surprising that if I make my living prescribing medicines or I make my living um, uh, doing psychotherapy, I might have very strong feelings about, about efficacy. But uh, this has been really problematic in, in mental health treatment. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I'm making this point because often there's a kind of fervor about this one way or the other, which just <laughs> in the end doesn't serve the people with these illnesses. And it's interesting, in, in professions where there, there aren't these kind of, you know, I do this and I, I don't do that, um, you know, you, you see a very different outcome. So in uh, cardiology where the practitioners uh, there's such a status difference, maybe, that the cardiologists are happy to prescribe exercise and dietary counseling and meditation. Doesn't, doesn't seem to get to their status or their reimbursement, but, but it would be really quite bizarre, really poor practice, just to give somebody, you know, uh, uh, an antihypertensive and some Lipitor and not prescribe these other things after they've had a heart attack. We, we're still uh, struggling for this, and I think it's really important to address the, these, these biases because I think they have at least something to do with it. All right, so I've already said this, but I want to talk a little bit of, just speculatively about you know, what's happening. So with, uh, with CBT, uh, the idea is, uh, I mean, the therapies were initially designed by Beck in the 1960s, to target um, maladaptive uh, biases, right? You, uh, especially in social situations, you'd be walking by somebody, and and you would have a, you'd be attracted, almost like a strong magnet, to anything that seemed negative, or you would interpret neutral stimuli as as damaging. So if your friend didn't smile at you in the uh, passing you in the hall, you wouldn't say, "Gee, he or she must be distracted." You would say, "Hmm." They must not like me anymore. And, and the notion with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is to alter, you know, through mediated by conscious cognitive processes, but through rehearsal uh, to make automatic, because 
I can't, every time I see somebody and they're smiling or not smiling, if I have to deliberatively, consciously wonder whether they like me, that's, that's not going to work. So this has to become automatic. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and presumably, this is, this is uh, again, changing synaptic waves. Now, you know, psychodynamic therapies, unfortunately, it's very hard to test their efficacy. When I was NIMH director in the US for almost six years, we had, I once counted, we had something like 16,000 grant applications during that time. And there wasn't a single one to test the efficacy of psychodynamic therapies. Maybe they thought they wouldn't get a fair trial, it'd be a waste of time, but see, see so we, we, we really don't know. But, but again, you know, the idea is, here for the person to develop a new narrative that is presumably therapeutic. But just coming up, you know, you can't, you know, a lot of people think, um, I've got a new narrative that I got from a fortune cookie or I, I took LSD and I had this vision um, or, or I had a brilliant therapist who told me it was all because my mother did this or that. These things are not really very helpful. What really matters is this long-term, again, this process of internalization, making automatic, what uh, the Freudians would say, working through, meaning working through the transference. Uh, but so if this stuff is really therapeutic, again, it is now having a, uh, a different automatic response to stimuli that previously had been anxiogenic or aversive. Um, so, it's maybe the longest distance between two points, but, but ultimately the, the idea um, is, is uh, not different. And again, this is all going to be hand-waving until we have some way of understanding the mechanism, and this is going to require computational models. Okay, so now let me go back to the nervous system. So here we had our, you know, psychoanalysis, but there are some really interesting psychotherapy experiments going on. So this is, a, this is in the US military. I'm sure the British military is doing very similar kinds of experiments. There are lots of soldiers who come back from the Middle East with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or some tragically some combination of traumatic brain in injuries and PTSD. And uh, the idea is, let's see if we can amp up exposure therapy because the truth is that the best we do now, the combinations of, you know, SSRI-like antidepressants and psychotherapies, doesn't work all that well, not well enough for lots and lots of people with post-traumatic stress disorder. They remain symptomatic and impaired. And so, uh, so uh, one idea is to actually, you know, once somebody has gone through their traumatic stimuli and imagination and sort of in less threatening ways, you know, when, they, when they're able to handle their emotions and you measure their heart rate and it's not beating through their chest, you know, it might even give them virtual reality goggles because you have a picture of this battlefield, you know, in Fallujah or whatever, uh, and, you know, really, you know, see what, how, how well you're, you're doing, whether you can make that picture safe. Now, there are other things that are being done that are not psychotherapy. One is uh, when you call up, and this is just a side note given our topic right now, but when you call up a memory, um, it becomes labile again, meaning um, it has to be molecularly consolidated. I'll show you a picture in a, in a, in a, in a second. Uh, and in fact, 
the fact that memories become labile when we call them up is how we edit them, right? It's how my wife and I remember with great clarity the same argument, but somehow the event, even though we were in the same room, seems very, very different, and she has great certainty and I have great certainty, because memories are not like a camcorder. We're always updating them and editing them. Um, big problem for eyewitness testimony, right, in, in, in trials. Once somebody's seen somebody in the lineup, what they do is they begin to consolidate, that's the bastard, now I'm more sure, you know. Um, but at any rate, uh, there, are, there are also pharmacologic experiments that are that the attempt to disrupt the reconsolidation of these fear memories uh, pharmacologically. That leads to a whole other limb of neuroethics, if we could willfully edit memories. Um, you know, isn't that after all what Macbeth was ordering up for his wife? We were talking about this at dinner last night, some of us. You know, he says to the doctor as she's hand-wringing, canst thou minister to a mind diseased? Well, what, what, what he meant was can we edit her memories so that, you know, this nasty uh, conscience would, uh, would stop bothering her. So, we'll see if that works. Uh, but at any rate, what I, what I want to show you, again, not in the context of psychotherapy, but in the context of other kinds of learning, which we can take as a distant proxy for psychotherapy, well, also relevant to, to the trauma, is, is uh, how, again, how these learned experiences get under the skin, get encoded, recorded in the brain. So. I've been talking about synapses. So here's a picture of a synapse. This is the part of the synapse that's gonna release a neurotransmitter in response to, I don't know, your cognitive behavioral therapy homework or something. Um, uh, or if you're in psychoanalysis, maybe to a really apt interpretation. Um, and here is the receiving neuron with its receptors. And these synapses are, uh, in, in many of the neurons in the brain, certainly the major projection neurons in our cerebral cortex are located on the heads and necks of what are called synaptic spine, or dendritic spines, I'm sorry. So here's a neuron, here's a cell body, and this cut off here is the axon, it's the part of the neuron that communicates downstream. And here are the, these are the, these are the antennae, the information uh, receiving parts of the neuron. And they have these spines on them that, again, at, at, at the heads and the necks, they have uh, uh, neurotransmitter receptors. So here's a, this is an actual micrograph, photomicrograph of the spine, and, of, of the dendrite. And here are the spines. And, you know, here's a spine head, and the spine head probably has receptors for excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate, and the neck might have receptors for dopamine, something that's gonna modulate the signal. We'll come back to that tomorrow. Um, and um, here is uh, another picture of a neuron. And what you see here, these, this is a cell nucleus. And the cell nucleus has the DNA, and the DNA gets read out, transcribed into RNA. And here, sitting in the at the base of these dendrites are gene products, the RNAs that are loaded onto the ribosomes, the machines that are going to turn them into protein, sitting around at the base of dendrites, 
waiting for a salient signal that, that, that says, you know, learn this, you know, cement this. And uh, in response to those signals, which can be synaptic spine specific, right, they sort of start making proteins. So this is a picture, you know, this isn't a mouse, so this isn't in CBT or in psychoanalysis, but it is a mouse in a learning paradigm. And over 24 hours, what you see, here's a dendrite, what you see is, uh, is this change. So here's a, here's a brand new spine. Here there were two blue, you know, they're, they're pseudo-colored. Here's blue and there's two and one has been pruned, but there's a new one. Um, I guess this is, this is the beginning and this is the end. And, and with learning, um, there actually are physical changes in the nervous system that record these experiences. So when, you know, people will say um, about genetics or biological psychiatry, you know, um, you have this bottom-up deterministic picture, what you have to remind them of is that the whole point of being a free-living animal and having a mammalian brain or a vertebrate brain is that we live a pretty long time and we learn a lot of things and we record them and that, cha that changes our behavior and that this is not, so, so, so I've talked about computation, but it's really important that this, the old model that the brain is like a piece of hardware, you know, you went out and bought a PC and life is software, really does an injustice because this, this is not that kind of hardware. It's changing, right? It's physically changing in response to lived experience. And we're literally rewiring our brains with, with, uh, with uh, experience, with learning, you know, including specialized, you know, codified forms of learning called psychotherapy. Okay, so went one too far. All right, so, so far, what I've done in some level is to um, integrate or maybe Synex would say reduce lived experience and psychotherapy to things that ultimately we might map onto brain mechanisms. So where's this collision I was talking about yesterday? Um, so now let me go back. The reason I showed you, perhaps tortured you with that, the, the amygdala and the stories about Damasio is that part of our cognitive and memorial memory circuitry encodes in ways that are absolutely opaque to consciousness, right? So you can have a hippocampal lesion and not remember having had that experience at all, and yet you will react to a stimulus uh, in an in a adaptive way, a fear stimulus by increasing your heart rate. There are people with uh, so-called prosopagnosia, little strokes that they can't recognize faces anymore. You show them stacks of photographs. You show them their spouse. They don't recognize their spouse, but their heart rate goes up, okay? So there's that. And then there's the part of memory that is available to consciousness and is cognitive. And I've made the assertion that they don't necessarily neatly map onto each other, and it's especially true in humans. 
you know, in humans, um, we think our way out of and into all kinds of situations. We, we you know, in uh, uh, a naive human uh, going to a fugu restaurant in Japan and experiencing, you know, numbness and being told that uh, the tetrodotoxin in the puffer fish they were eating, if they just had a slightly higher dose, they would be dead. Uh, you know, you would, you would flee, right? You, you, but instead, this becomes an acquired taste, and people, even though it's illegal, people will seek out a chef who can give them just the right amount of nearly lethal potion. Uh, uh, and, and so um, the point is that our, we can shape our, through, through cognition, through consciousness, we, 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 can, we can shape our behavior in ways that uh, don't necessarily correspond to these sort of innate, automatic, implicit uh, kinds of circuits. But I think that this, to just to go back to, you know, where I started yesterday, um, you know, we would say that, I mean, there's all, I'm not, you know, going to go into evidence about readiness potentials and that the motor system being prepared to move before you even realize you want to move but you know there's this kind of evidence um, what we can say is that most of our uh, decision making and behavior maybe all of it is subserved by in the end by systems that are unconscious and explicit they're like that limb the amygdala limb of the, that i showed you um, uh, and um, I can give you reasons for why I behave this way or that way, but I can't, by introspection, I, I mean, I, I think I'm acting for reasons, but I actually do not have access. Again, that's why the Damasio experiment is, is sort of so interesting here. I, I, no matter how I try, I can't have access to the actual decision-making mechanisms and why I behaved in a certain way. So we can't call this sort of cognitive conscious sense of, uh, of agency, of, of selfhood, veridical. I mean, we can't, we can't, could, some, something else is going on. Uh, if we believe we live in a lawful causal universe, uh, we don't have to get to metaphysics. Uh, uh, just as a scientist, I can't find the mechanisms or the antecedent causes by which um, so much of what I do, maybe all that I do in terms of decision-making and action are controlled by this putative self. And, you know, we have um, these narratives. We tell ourselves these stories about our psychopathology. And in some kinds of psychotherapy, not CBT, obviously, but in some kinds of psychotherapy, you know, we give people new narratives. And somehow some of these things are um, therapeutic over time. And so that's, that's really the collision. Um, and the way, uh, you know, um, I think about it is there are a whole bunch of phony dualities that psychiatrists believe in. Genes versus environment. Oh, that's nuts. I mean, they, they work together to build our brains, right? There's very little that's more heritable than adult height. But if you're starved as a child, your genes don't get to do their thing, right? So, so th this kind of... Uh, Opposition again, just really, really is a cognitive distortion. 
nor biology versus psychology. Well, for, these are just different levels of description of the outputs and the structure of the same organ. Um, you know, uh, I, I often think of, uh, you know, two professions divided by a shared organ. But, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is finding a middle level description. And here, here I, I do think computational models are going to be so critical that will mediate between the sort of brain circuit level, uh, which is, is, is sometimes used carelessly, right? You must be firing your amygdala because, you know, uh, but mediating between that and psychology. And medication versus psychotherapy, I, th I think I've dealt with that. That really, again, just different approaches, uh, you empirically decide which is better for modifying certain kinds of behavior. But, oh, we don't, we don't have to see that, it's getting late. Um, I just thought there were too many text slides and should throw in a picture. Um, but these neural explanations don't in any way that we can now capture um, deal with this intuition, this introspection that of self, of agency, of narratives that describe how I came to be, how I am, if I have a mental illness, why I suffer this way, what happened to me. And we can't, the, even, even with a good psychoanalyst, you cannot find these things in a veridical way with, uh, with introspection. Although it's interesting, I mean, it's a joke and it's not a joke. I mean, Freud realized that we actually don't have introspective access to the business end of our cognition and behavior, but he wasn't that original. The Greeks understood this, right? Uh, when I, I'm talking now, I hope I'm relatively fluent and coherent, uh, but I'm not saying, now I need a verb phrase, right? And now I need an adjective. So the Greeks had invoked muses, right? Uh, and these, these muses represented this, these high, massively parallel, highly efficient uh, systems that generate language and behavior. And again, I have no access to this, no honest access by, um, by introspection. And yet I have this absolutely ineluctable, inescapable intuition of my subjectivity and my agency. Now, even if among philosophers, I, I understand uh, eliminative approaches ha are out of vogue, uh, there are many neuroscientists who basically say, well then, um, these self-narratives just are a mere illusion. And I would say, well, maybe not a mere illusion. And while we can talk about implicit deeper level causes of these things, um, if, if I don't have a sense of agency, if I can't control what's happening to me, a stress becomes toxic. It becomes sort of like inescapable foot shock in some way. Uh, people get sick, right, uh, uh, in measurable ways when they, they feel that they cannot control what's happening to them. If I have a true sense of being externally controlled, we would say I have a psychosis, right? Uh, and, uh, and if I don't have a sense of minds, my own or other people's, we say we're on the autism spectrum. So, uh, and again, we can think of deeper implicit systems that are involved in this, but, but, uh, but I think these, um, you know, I, I think the, to, to just 
write off the, the importance of this sense of agency um, and efficacy in the world, I think is, 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 is a mistake that, that is missing some very important uh, observations. Um, so what are they? And can we, uh, you know, is this something where we can sort of fuse our vision uh, or, do, or, or not? And I would say that um, the, our consciousness, which is a capacity-limited serial processor of information that seems to be very, very useful. Uh, but as an, as an output, it generates ideas and, and cognitions that are only, if we, again, if we can go back to the trauma example, are proxies for, but not, don't map neatly and perfectly onto these unconscious uh, uh, mechanisms that actually produce our behavior. And sometimes they can't. Because consciousness is very expensive. It really is capacity limited. If you try to use conscious working memory and ask how many numbers you can hold in your mind in, in a series for X number of minutes, it's, it's really limited. You know, if you're really great at it, it's eight or nine forward and five backwards. Um, uh, whereas, you know, what the, the machine that's allowing me to, uh, you know, give this lecture or to you know, pick up this glass of water that's making these incredible calculations has so much more complexity, it's doing so much more in parallel that I can't possibly simply map this, uh, this sense of volition onto it. So I think we have to deal with these things as non-veridical, my, my, my sense of self, my narrative as non-veridical, as a non-veridical proxy. And the question is, what do we do with that? How do we privilege that? How do we, how do we uh, imagine the, the value of this self-description? And that will be the topic for tomorrow. Thank you.